0: Hello, you're listening to a On Israel in Al Monitor. I am Ben Kaspit from Tel Aviv. When Prime Minister Naftali Bennett paid a historic visit to the Emirates last week, his predecessor Benjamin Netanyahu looked on with unconcealed jealousy. He felt that although he had engineered Israel's peace agreements with the UAE, Bahrain, and Morocco, his successor was reaping their fruit. A new book causing waves across the oceans and seas challenges Netanyahu's appropriation of the Abraham Accords. Its name, Trump's Peace, says it all. It was written by Barack Ravid, probably the Middle East's leading diplomatic correspondent, writing for Walla News in Israel and Axios in the United States. The book is full of original reporting, revealing behind-the-scenes developments and slaughtering some sacred cows grazing in Israel's political pastures in recent years. Chief among uh, these is the perception that Netanyahu and Trump are good friends, members of an intimate mutual admiration society, and that this explains the generous American policy changes in Israel's favor such as moving the US Embassy to Jerusalem. Not quite as the book reveals. The interview Aravid obtained with Donald Trump three months after leaving the White House, a bitter and angry man, made headlines around the world unmasking Trump's true feelings about the Israeli Prime Minister, whom he dismissed with the F word and said he didn't say spoken to him since the elections. Beyond Trump's deep humiliation over what he wrongly views as Netanyahu's betrayal, the book contains fascinating historic, geopolitical, and diplomatic insights. It unveils the backstage developments that resulted in an historic agreement disproving the age-old paradigm according to which Arab states would never make peace with Israel as long as Israel doesn't make peace with the Palestinians, the peace that Trump made is alive and kicking, and Barack Ravid will be here, alive and kicking as well, to tell us all right after this short break.
1: Hi, I'm Elizabeth Hagedorn, and I'm the State Department correspondent at Al Monitor. And I'm Joe Snell. I'm Al Monitor's video editor. Let's admit it. This past year has been difficult to stay on top of the news and sift through what's accurate and what's misleading. Let Al Monitor
0: help you. If you care about the Middle East and North Africa, you should consider listening to Al Monitor's audio series on the Middle East with Andrew Parasoliti and Amberin and Zaman, and on Israel with Ben Caspi. You can now watch our newest video podcast, "Reading the Middle East" with Gilles Capel. You can subscribe to these series on your favorite podcast platforms. And
1: through a host of free daily and weekly newsletters, we offer a range of perspectives with the highest journalistic standards. You can subscribe to these newsletters at almonitor.com. As an award-winning media service headquartered in Washington, D.C., Almonitor has a network of over 160 contributors around the world. So if you haven't done so already, be sure to visit almonitor.com, where you can find all of these newsletters and podcasts along with first-class reporting and analysis.
0: Now I'm very uh, uh, happy to welcome my friend and colleague, Barak Ravid. Hi, Barak, how are you doing? And thank you for joining us here on uh, on Israel in Al Monitor.
1: Hi, Ben, thank you for having me.
0: And uh, congratulations uh, with your first book and very successful. Uh, By the way, if it goes out in English, what will be the title? You know,
1: in in my uh, I had two interviews with President Trump, and in the second interview, which was in July, I um, I tried. Uh, um, you know, um, he he asked me what's the what's the name of the books going to be, and back at the time, I still thought about the name, the Peacemaker. How Donald Trump changed the Middle East. He was obviously very happy to hear that that's the name. I thought about later. The name has changed, and I think that now, when it comes out in English, hopefully in the next six months, it will, the name will be Trump's peace, the Abraham Accords, and the reshaping of the Middle East.
0: And it uh, it is out in Israel, and it's is, uh, it, it's leading the, the the table of the bestsellers, and it's uh, fascinating. And I wanted to ask you first, uh, when and why did you decide? It's not a simple decision to write a book about the, the Abraham Accords, Did you believe that diplomatic agreements with three states that uh, had never been at war with Israel would hold an an entire book?
1: Um, You know, first, I didn't even, at the beginning, like a year ago, I wasn't even sure that people still read books. That was my, uh, (laughs) you know, my main uh, thought at the time. Uh, And then I, you know, I just asked some friends And they said, no, 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 you should write it. We think it's an interesting thing. And when I went to uh, the publisher of uh, the books, he basically told me after two minutes of phone call, he just told me, start writing, I love it. And so I did. And I thought that the Abraham Accords were really the biggest breakthrough in Middle East peace in 25 years. And I wanted to be the person who will be the first to write uh, as detailed as possible account of how those uh, accords uh, came about.
0: And I think the result is uh, is very good. Now, please try and sort out the questions of credits. Would the Abraham Accords <laughs> have, uh, yes, I know it's difficult, have come into the world without President Trump or without Netanyahu? How would you split the credit between these two? Or would you say that Netanyahu actually delayed and 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 almost sank this initiative?
1: Uh, well, I think there are three people who deserve credit for, for the Abraham Accords. First, let's start with Donald Trump. I really think, I know it's a controversial thing to say, but I really think according to uh, the research I had for the book, the conclusion I got is that the Abraham Accords wouldn't have happened without Donald Trump in the Oval Office, and there are several reasons for that. First, because uh, Trump's policy in the region, like it or not, it had good, good consequences, it had bad consequences, but one of the good consequences was that it got Israel and the Arab world closer together, and Trump also managed through his policies to create relationships uh, with a lot of trust with regional leaders, and I think this was very uh, important to get the Abraham Accords. Second, uh, the people that Trump appointed to deal with this file, mainly Jared Kushner and Avi Berkowitz, were really the closest people in his inner circle. So when they uh, um, get something right, and when they have an achievement, you know he deserves the credit. He appointed them uh, the same way as when he appointed people who made mistakes. It was also his responsibility. And third, Donald Trump. And I think, unlike other presidents, was very ready to put his hand into his pocket uh, or into the US government pocket and take out tangibles for uh, those countries in the region uh, in order to encourage them to uh, go forward with those, uh, with those deals. And I think this was uh, critical. To get uh, those deals so i think donald trump deserves a lot of credit now let's move to to the second person which is benjamin netanyahu when netanyahu came into office in 2009 he started <clears throat> he started pushing this new um idea of outside in diplomacy meaning and also economic the peace world.
0: you remember the, talking about economic peace
1: yeah, yeah, there was talk about economic peace, which uh, lasted uh, exactly two weeks, yes. uh, because then he realized, you know, in in, in, in economy, as in ev- any other thing, uh, Netanyahu uh, mostly likes the revenue. He doesn't like uh, yeah, to payment. give anything.
0: Yeah,
1: exactly. Exactly. This is, you know, in, in many other fields in his life. Um, and but, but Netanyahu did managed to push forward this idea of outside in. First, let's go to the Arab world. And from there, we might get to peace with the Palestinians. And I have to admit that for many years, I thought this was bullshit. And he proved me wrong. And for 12 years in power, he managed to build a lot of secret relationships with uh, uh, countries in the region, mainly in the Gulf. But, and there's a big but. The infrastructure that Netanyahu has built, this diplomatic infrastructure, was very important to get the Abraham Accords, but when it got to the point of negotiating them, Netanyahu didn't really want them. It it wasn't his first priority. His first priority is to try and annex parts of the West Bank. Uh, And You remember that after putting together the government in May, 2020, Uh, he put this deadline of July 1st to start the annexation process. And for Netanyahu, this was the most important thing. He campaigned on it for three consecutive uh, election campaigns. And at the end of June, when the deadline really got close, the Trump administration really pushed back on this idea because they didn't want to do it. They didn't want to go with this unilateral uh, annexation. They were willing to, let's say, accept some sort of annexation if Netanyahu gives uh, territory to the Palestinians, which he never dreamed of, of doing, obviously. And when we got to the end of June, we, we almost reached the biggest clash between the Trump administration and Netanyahu over this. And Netanyahu, at a certain point, even seriously considered going forward with annexation without a green light from Trump. And Trump's people, Kushner and Berkowitz, told Netanyahu directly, well, if you do that, first, you know what happens to somebody who pisses off Donald Trump. Uh, Trump tweets against him, which is, you know, a, a big threat. <laughs> and second, they told him, you'll turn your biggest uh, friend to your biggest enemy. And Netanyahu held several discussions of, on what to do, and he decided to cut his losses and to go for the Abraham Accords. But after the uh, talks about the the negotiations were done and the deal uh, was reached, and a date was set for this trilateral phone call between Trump, Netanyahu, and the Crown Prince of Abu Dhabi, Mohammed bin Zayed, it was set for August 13th for this historic announcement. 24 hours before, as in many other Uh, cases in Netanyahu's political history, he got cold feet. And his ambassador to Washington, Ron Dermer, called the White House and told them, uh, listen, um, there's political turmoil in Israel, Netanyahu might go for early elections because uh, the the budget uh, won't pass, so um, we're not going to sign the deal. And when the White House heard that, Kushner, uh, Berkowitz, and even David Friedman, they basically went nuts because everything was set, everything was ready. And Friedman calls the prime minister's office in Jerusalem and tells Netanyahu's uh, aides, he tells them, you know, this thing is happening tomorrow with or without you. So uh, you, you can't stop it. And then he calls Ron Dermer, uh, the Israeli ambassador, and he tells them, Ron, this is happening. Be there tomorrow. Uh, this is the hour, this is the phone number, you, you will be on the line, there's no other choice. And Netanyahu realizes that uh, that's it, there's no way back, and, and he goes for it. So so while Netanyahu laid down the infrastructure that was critical to get to the Abraham Accords, when the Abraham Accords were actually negotiated, he, he really, it wasn't his first choice and he tried to get out of it. The third person who deserves credit credit is the crown prince of Abu Dhabi, Mohammed bin Zayed, because he basically uh, really wanted to normalize relations with Israel strategically, and at the same time, he wanted to keep the two-state solution alive. And he's the one who provided the ladder for both Trump and Netanyahu to go down from the annexation tree and turn this whole thing into a historic uh, breakthrough in the peace process while taking care of his two strategic goals of keeping the two state solution alive and normalizing
0: with israel this is an unbelievable uh, behind the scenes story you know it it, it teaches us uh, once more what kind of a shakespearean actor is netanyahu and also about the, the phenomena of cold feet. He, will, he, he always gets cold, cold feet before these kind of uh, decisions, historical decisions, and it is highly interesting. And uh, because you, you answered uh, my, uh, my next planned questions, I will ask you the following. Uh, talking about infrastructure that Netanyahu said for the, the, uh, this historical movement, how do you think Netanyahu felt last week when uh, he was fighting uh, the state for letting his uh, wife and children go on using uh, state cars and, and and bodyguards, while Naftali Bennett flew the first flight of an, uh, an Israeli prime minister to, uh, to Abu Dhabi and met MBZ there. By the way, he calls him, Bennett calls MBZ, the real ar- architecture of the, the, of the new Middle East. How do you think Netanyahu felt in, in these minutes? I'm, I'm
1: sure that Netanyahu felt really bad and it's, you know, I can understand him. It's pretty tragic um, because when Netanyahu managed to get his biggest achievement in his 30 plus uh, years in politics, um, this is when uh, he lost, um, he lost his power. And so I really think that when he saw those pictures, um, he was really upset. And by the way, I th- I and I also wrote it in the book, that many of the things that Netanyahu did during the negotiations on the Abraham Accords, for example, um, keeping Benny Gantz the Minister of Defense and Foreign Minister Gabi Ashkenazi in, the, in total dark about those negotiations. Obviously, that did not help uh, uh, to keep his government uh, together. And when his government uh, uh, collapsed, that was the end of his political career eventually. And I will tell you something else. The Abraham Accords, in a way, um, cre- created a big change in the, Israel- in the Jewish society in Israel meaning it softened a lot of the tensions the Jews in Israel felt about Arabs. And I think that also contributed to the fact that today we have an Arab uh, party in the coalition. So in a very strange uh, way, I think the Abraham Accords, which were Netanyahu's biggest achievements, also laid the ground
0: for his for his um, fall from power, yes, for his rival to to uh, to annex Mansour Abbas into the coalition, yeah, and, and Netanyahu uh, he came out out from this adventure uh, uh, not as a prime minister but as a peacemaker. He brought uh, the Ar- the Israeli Arabs inside the coalition, and and he brought uh, he was one of the key. Uh, players in the game that uh, brought uh, the Emirates and more states to peace with Israel. And because you mentioned, just mentioned, Gabi Ashkenazi and many guns from blue and white, uh, do you think, what part did they play in blocking the annexation, or did they know, did not play a, a part at all?
1: No, I think they had a big part, a very big part, because even though the coalition agreement between Netanyahu and them, Uh, didn't give them a veto power over this decision about annexation. Netanyahu could just go for it. They uh, did many things, especially in their talks with the White House, that basically created an environment in which the White House felt that, you know, going for annexation without a broad consensus in the Israeli government would be a very problematic thing. And they made it clear to the White House that they don't support a unilateral annexation. And they actually were the ones, especially Ashkenazi, who gave this idea to the White House that, you know, if you want to go forward with annexation, we should do it as not as a unilateral step, but as a step that also includes benefits for the Palestinians. And the White House bought this idea and brought it to Netanyahu. Uh, And Netanyahu wasn't ready to give anything to the Palestinians. So this idea that Gantz and Ashkenazi uh, um, uh, promoted actually contributed
0: a lot to stopping annexation uh, for good. So we see that the the, the, the all-time master of politics in Israel, Benjamin Netanyahu, was hacked by two rookies like uh, Gantz and Ashkenazi. But I want to learn some more. made so many revelations and scoops in this book. Can you tell me how did the assassination of Iran's uh, Revolutionary Guard Chief uh, Qasem Soleimani turn from being a a peak moment in U.S.-Israeli cooperation to one of its most significant lows? Because I didn't know it.
1: This is really an amazing story. I think that it's really one of the stories in the book that, that... I, you know, when I heard it, my my ears started burning. Um, And I'll tell you some of the behind the scenes, in my second interview with Trump, I asked him about the Soleimani uh, assassination because I wanted to know details about the cooperation between Israel and the U.S. about it. And then his answer shocked me because he said, well, I know exactly what happened there. And I was very disappointed with Israel. Israel did not do the right thing on Soleimani. And I said, what? (laughs) What did you just say? And he said it again, that he was disappointed that this wasn't what he expected. But then at a certain point, he stopped himself and didn't get into the details. And when I started asking people about it, um, I heard this amazing story that, Suleimani. there was intelligence that Suleimani was planning attacks against US targets in Iraq and in other places in the region. And Israel and the US were discussing what to do. And apparently, what Trump understood from his people, or again, there's a dispute between the people who were involved, whether this was really the case or it was just something that Trump got into his mind and couldn't let go, that, but he understood that Netanyahu, let's say, refused to play a more active role in the killing of Soleimani and basically wanted the US to do it without Israel being involved at all. And Trump got really mad because he basically felt like Netanyahu was using him. Um, And he told his people that Netanyahu is ready to fight Iran until the last American soldier. and again, some of Trump's people say that his feeling was, was justified. Some of them say it wasn't justified, but it doesn't matter because it, it stayed in his mind until today. And Netanyahu at the beginning uh, didn't know that that's the way Trump feels. It took several months until he understood that and he wanted to talk about it with Trump, you know, in, in four eyes. But the, the, the only possibility was to talk with him about it was when he came to sign the Abraham Accords in September 2020, like eight months later. And Netanyahu asked the White House to have like 15 minutes of alone time with Trump. And they told him, listen, uh, we can't. There's no time. He's in the middle of campaign. Uh, You can try and catch him like between things and, and tell him about it. And then there was this reception when Netanyahu and the other leaders arrived at the White House. And Netanyahu sits next to Trump. And he leans over to Trump, and he whispers in his ear, uh, listen, this this Soleimani thing was all a misunderstanding. And Trump nods his head uh, as if he uh, acknowledges what Netanyahu just told them. And Netanyahu was sure that that's, that's it, problem solved. But apparently, Trump wasn't very convinced. And until today, he is certain that Netanyahu used him on
0: the Soleimani killing. And uh, this, this uh, issue of uh, Trump-Netanyahu relationship, actually you, you killed the theory that most of us believed in uh, that we have here a love story, uh, two old bodies that are uh, well-connected and, 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 and they actually love each other. And suddenly you go to interview the president, hears totally different things, and you meet a, a lone, bitter a, a leader in his uh, Mar-a-Lago mansion. Can you tell us a little more about it?
1: Well, I think that Netanyahu and Trump for their own domestic political reasons, um, were really happy at uh, projecting uh, you know, to public opinion that there's no daylight between them, they're best friends, there's a bromance there. Because for Trump, he needed the evangelical base and he knew that the evangelicals love Bibi. And for Bibi, he needed um, to mobilize his own right wing and ultra-orthodox base that loved Trump. So it was very convenient to both of them. But at the end of the day, I, I was really surprised to, to find out that, at least from Trump's side, you know, he didn't see Netanyahu as a friend at all. He saw him as a maybe, you know, a political ally or, you know. Some somebody who can help him in his own politics, um, but not a friend for sure. And when I saw Trump, as you said, in the first meeting, he was really bitter and he wanted to unpack a lot of the frustrations that he had about Netanyahu. And it was only three months after he left the White House. But even in the second interview, in the phone call in July, when Trump was already, let's say, more at peace uh, with what happened, if, if one can, can, can say that yes. about him. Um, okay, so he didn't uh, say uh, fuck him about Netanyahu again, but basically his grievances about Netanyahu stayed the same, even if he uh, articulated them in a more, let's say, uh, polite way.
0: Why, as you reveal in your book, did Trump's son-in-law Jared Kushner throw Israeli Ambassador Ron Dermer out of his White House office just before Israel's March 2020 elections? Is it something that you already mentioned or or a different story?
1: No, no, it's a different story. It's pretty, uh, it's also something that I found out for the first time when I was working on the book, because as you remember, Trump uh, presented his peace plan in, on January 28th at the White House. And Netanyahu tried using him, he tried using it um, to uh, to go forward with uh, annexation a few days later and Trump blocked it. And it was a big embarrassment for Netanyahu because he ran a fo- his whole campaign on, on him annexing parts of the West Bank before the elections. So after this whole thing blows up at the end of January, Trump's advisors and Netanyahu's advisors, they don't speak for several weeks. There's just a really, it's it's a real low point. And towards the end of February, a few days before the elections in Israel, Dermer comes to see um, Kushner in his office at the White House. And this meeting becomes very, very tense. And Dermer basically uh, tells Kushner, that uh, uh, they, embar- they embarrassed Netanyahu at the critical moment of his campaign and that Netanyahu doesn't know if he can trust the president anymore. And when Kushner hears that, he really explodes and he tells uh, Dermer, he tells him, Ron, what you just said is disgusting, get out of here. And he just throws them out of the office. Just it's really unbelievable. unbelievable. And, and by the way, yeah, and this thing happened sort of happened again when they negotiated the Abraham Accords several months later, because quite the beginning of the negotiations, all of a sudden, Dermer calls the White House and tells Avi Berkowitz, the White House envoy, he tells him, listen, Netanyahu uh, wanted uh, to to let you know that um, he's ready to give up on annexation, only if you get them three Arab countries to normalize and not only the UAE. <laughs> and uh, you know, Berkowitz delivers this message to, to Kushner and Kushner really explodes and he tells Berkowitz, okay, call Ron and tells him that one country is all he can get. And if he doesn't want it, he can go fuck himself.
0: <laughs> and
1: uh, Berkowitz calls uh, Dermer and gives them a more, let's say, toned down version of this message and he tells them, uh, Ron, listen, uh, I can't tell you what to do, but I really urge you to take this deal. Um, so it really show, it showed me that really we, we you know, um, above the ground and on the table, we saw this really great relationship between the parties, but under the table and, and you know, under the water, there was this really huge uh, uh, glacier uh that an iceberg that we didn't see and
0: and it was full of really bad blood of house of cards style and a turkish bazaar and whatever can you tell us uh, what was the real story behind the the famous uh, f-35 fighter jets uh, deal to the emirates and anyhow i think lied to the public when he said it was not a quid for quo uh, but now we know that the, the whole deal is in danger but now we know that uh, it was uh, preconditioned by the emirates it's th- this is a very complicated story and i think the
1: answer is yes and no meaning as far as i understand from talking to all the parties who were involved it wasn't like a precondition meaning the emirates didn't say if you don't give us the f-35s we're not going to uh, sign the normalization, deal, okay? But the Emiratis did say uh, to the Americans, and by the way, to the Israelis for a long, long time before the Abraham Accords, every time that Israel raised uh, the normalization possibilities with the Emiratis, the Emiratis would say, oh great, so if we have normalization, we're not enemies anymore, so you're not gonna have any problem with letting the Americans sell us the F-35. So the Emiratis used this uh, argument with the Americans, telling them, great, we're ready, not for normalization, we want a peace agreement with Israel. And if we're at peace with Israel, then there's really no need to stop us from getting the F-35s. So it was more complicated, but Netanyahu definitely did not tell the truth about his knowledge of the fact that the F-35 is an issue that is Somehow hovering over this uh, over this deal, or on the sideline of this deal, he definitely knew it, and he kept it. You know, he kept it as a secret from the Israeli defense establishment, from the minister of defense, from the intelligence community, which is something which is completely crazy. Uh, and we were really lucky that at a certain point. Uh, it was discovered so that the Israeli Ministry of Defense managed to take certain steps with the US to make yes. sure that Israel's qualitative military edge is maintained. But Netanyahu definitely, and this I'm saying from talking to uh, like at least 10 people who were involved in this, definitely did not tell the truth to his minister of defense about it, to the defense establishment, and to the Israeli public about his knowledge about the, uh, the talks between the US and the UAE on
0: the F-35 deal. Finally, uh, if you mentioned and I want, I want this interview to, to, to go on forever, but uh, we're out of time, but if you mentioned the Ministry of Defense uh, in your interview with uh, with Trump, it was uh, complimentary about Benny Gantz. Is there, is there an explanation to this warmth that he, that he showed towards uh, uh, Gantz and uh, if, for example, let's imagine that Netanyahu comes back to power in Israel and, and Trump will be reelected in the next election, I think they will start all over again. Nothing happened, and and the, the interests are still, the political interests are still there, and, and let's go on. Don't you?
1: Yeah, so let's start with Benny Gantz. Uh, first, I think Trump has, uh, you know, a warm place for generals. He likes generals. Uh, And I think that uh, this helped Gantz a lot in his relationship with Trump. And second, I think that Trump, uh, when he met Benny Gantz in January 2020, before the third elections in Israel, he really felt that Gantz would be able to do something with his peace plan and to maybe get peace with the Palestinians much more than Netanyahu. First, because he didn't believe Netanyahu anymore, and he did believe Uh, Benny Gantz. um, And he thought that the Palestinians really hate Netanyahu and that they don't hate Benny Gantz. So I think that those two reasons got him to this point that he, I think, was was hoping that Gantz would win the uh, March 2020 uh, elections. And about, you know, what's going to happen if Trump comes back to power and Netanyahu comes back to power, which is as you know, it's, it's, a, it's a scenario that, that could happen. It's not unlikely. And as you said, I think that at the end of the day, if this happens, they will find a way to work together. I don't think it will be this uh, you know big crisis. Uh, I'm sure that if uh, both of them will be uh, um, in a place that they're um, close to getting back to power, they'll find a way to mend relations, Netanyahu will kiss the ring, Trump will be happy, and everything will go back to normal. The only thing that will be problematic is that I think Trump would still uh, feel that Netanyahu is not serious about peace with the Palestinians. And if Trump wants to try and uh, start again moving forward on
0: this issue, Netanyahu will be in a problem. And by the way, mentioning this, you see the attitude uh, within Israeli right and especially Bibi's uh, electoral base in Israel. You start, you seeing the turnover since this interview that you brought uh, when, when uh, Trump mentioned the F word, towards Netanyahu, you suddenly see, I, I saw in one of the religious papers in the, uh, last weekend, that the, the deal of the century of Donald Trump, that they all praised in real time, suddenly it's a disaster and, and everything is <laughs> changed. Yeah. But not, don't worry, they will forget everything if and when these two gentlemen will come to power I think uh, me and the, and the listeners enjoy this interview very much, Bakavid, the author of uh, the new bestseller in Israel, Trump's piece about the Abraham Accords. Thank you very much for uh, joining us, Irina. Thank Monitor. you, Ben. Thank you, take care, and a lot Thank of you, success, Toda.
1: Thank you, Toda. Bye.
0: Hello, I'm Gilles Kepel, professor at Sciences Po and Normal Soup in Paris and author of a number of books and
1: articles on the Middle East. Through my new podcast, Reading the Middle East, on the award-winning media service El monitor, we will take a deep dive into the trends in the region with the authors and thought leaders who are shaping how we think about the Middle East. Reading the Middle East will be a fantastic addition to El Monitor's outstanding podcast lineup, including including On the Middle East with Andrew Parasiliti and Amber Zaman, and On Israel with Ben Caspit. You can subscribe on your favorite listening platforms. We look forward to your joining our conversation.
0: Thank you for staying with us it's a problem how to decide where to begin with all the major headlines and unbelievable stories that Barack Ravid just told us. I cannot uh, escape mentioning the fact, the unbelievable fact, that 24 hours before the famous uh, uh, three-way telephone uh, conversation between President Trump, MBZ from uh, Abu Dhabi, And Benjamin Netanyahu in Israel, Ambassador Dermer, called the White House and said, listen, maybe it's not the right time, we have uh, political problems, etc. They had to uh, throw him all the way outside in order to, to, uh, to make it clear and loud that this is going to happen, as Ambassador Friedman or Gerard Kushner said, this is going to happen with you or without you, Mr. Netanyahu. Ravid uh, credits uh, the whole uh, three partners in the, the historic Abraham Accords. Of course, uh, President Trump's uh, uh, way of doing business in the Middle East, uh, it had uh, many advantages and also uh, low points, but uh, the Abraham Accords mostly are signed under the name of uh, the President. <clears throat> but we cannot, uh, we cannot escape from the, the conclusion that Benjamin Netanyahu was a partner. And, of course, MBZ, that Prime Minister Bennett calls him right now the, the architect of the new Middle East. Talking about Netanyahu, uh, Ravid said that uh, the political or diplomatic uh, infrastructure that he laid in the Middle East talking about capitals like, uh, like Abu Dhabi, like Bahrain, uh, Morocco, and many other places, was important and pivotal in, in these accords. But Benjamin Netanyahu did not really wanted this outcome. He preferred annexation. He planned annexation. He promised annexation uh, through three election campaigns in Israel. And uh, when he wanted to do it, who actually uh, stopped the the maneuver was the White House, with a lot of support from the two generals, two uh, chief of staff, uh, Benny Gantz, and Gabi Ashkenazi from Blue and White. Another important uh, uh, revelation of this book is that Netanyahu considered in one point to go for the annexation uh, act without the support of the White House. And then uh, Gerard Kushner actually threatened uh, the prime minister and his staff and said, you don't have a, a, a green light from Trump and you don't want that your best friend will become eventually your worst enemy. Trump piece uh, by uh, Barack Ravid uh, went, I think it was published in Israel only in Hebrew in this stage and I hope very much for the English language uh, readers, that it will be uh, translated as fast as possible, because it's really fascinating. I hope you enjoyed uh, this conversation, and I hope to find you here next week, next time, next place on Israel Al-Monitor. I'm Ben Kaspit from Tel Aviv, take care.